0: Hello, I'm Ian Rodwell, host of the Linklaters Ideas Foundry, where we talk about and try to unpick the art of working together in the 21st century organisation. And for our second festive seasonal special, we're breaking new ground for the podcast because for the first time we're welcoming back a returning guest, Paul Lewis, our Linklaters firmwide managing partner. Now last year, I gave Paul a particularly hard challenge to select his favourite six business books of all time. This year I've been a little bit kinder. I've asked Paul to choose only four books, one for each season to provide a literary canter through the year that was. Although as his regular LinkedIn updates feature veritable waterstones of new titles, maybe it's not such an easy task. And as last time we'll also smuggle in a non-business book and a piece of music that captures the spirit of 2023. So Paul, welcome back. Ian, uh, lovely to be back, lovely to be
1: back. I think this is just because you and I like books.
0: I, I think so, I think so. <laughs> and uh, no, look, I did ask you this question uh, last year, but how tricky was it to confine your choices to just a book for all seasons? So I set
1: myself some rules and the rules I set myself were that I wasn't going to talk about any books that I've already talked about on LinkedIn. So that takes out a number of the potentially more obvious ones for 2023. My second rule was that it needed to be something that really for some reason stayed in my mind, sort of changed the way that I thought about things. So I think I've come up with four and I think I've snuck in an extra one as well. I think I'm going to take one as a pair. So yeah, it's it's not easy, but it's
0: been fun going through. OK, so let's rewind back to the spring. So a book that represents you're reading around that time.
1: So uh, this is its not really a business book, but it's a sports book, and I think probably has some relevance to business more generally, certainly attitudes towards winning and succeeding. So this is a book called Beryl, uh, the subtitle In Search of Britain's Greatest Athlete by an author called Jeremy Wilson. And Ian, have you heard
0: of Beryl? I haven't heard of Beryl, and I'm thinking, is this, it's a, it, it's the the, the, the female uh, sort of name, Beryl? Yeah, it, it is, yeah.
1: a good old-fashioned British name. So, yeah. uh, so the, the, the the meta version of this is that she is one of the greatest athletes the world has ever seen, and yet no one, or very few people, had really heard of her until this book came out, and even subsequent to the yeah. book coming out. So, um, why Spring? Well, it's one of the first books I've read this year, and that is because... Fairly linear fashion. It won the Sunday Times Best Sports Book of the Year award last year. I saw that in one of the lists at Christmas. Bought it over the Christmas holiday and read it pretty quickly. Now, some disclaimers: I am not a cyclist. I have never got into that. I like running. I don't no, never really got into cycling, and uh, so I know very little about cycling. But I like reading sports uh, stories about you know people who do impressive things, and it came with that in premature of the Sunday Times Best Sports Book of the Year.
0: So, shall I tell you about Beryl? Yeah, I want to know, want to know, about, want to know about Beryl. There you go. So, <laughs> she was a British
1: female cyclist, uh, mainly in the 60s and 70s, although her longevity was, was, was very long. Uh, she went on uh, quite late in life. And in terms of, I'm just going to read out a list of the things she achieved during her cycling career. And bear in mind, this is a time where women weren't allowed to participate in cycling in the Olympics, and there was no female Tour de France. So, uh, broken down into time trialing, track racing and road racing. So time trialing, British best all-rounder, champion for 25 successive years. She was the first woman in the world to beat a time of one hour for 25 miles, first woman in the world to beat a time of two hours for 50 miles, the first woman to beat a time of four hours for 100 miles. In track racing, she was the 3000 thousand metres Pursuit World Champion five times, she was the national champion 13 times, and she was the first woman to beat a time of four minutes on the track. In road racing, she was a world champion twice, she was a national champion 12 times. In 1967, and this is one of the things she became incredibly well known for, she became the only woman to beat a men's competitive record, riding 277.25 miles in 12 hours. And she was awarded the MBE in 1964 and the OBE in 1968. Described by contemporaries as the greatest cyclist who ever lived, by some as the greatest sportswoman of all time, and yet very, very, very little known. So that's a pretty impressive roster of uh, of achievements,
0: isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's amazing, and to sort of be under the be under the radar, and. Uh, I mean, is uh, how how long did Beryl go on for
1: in the? Uh, well, about what, twenty five years, I suppose, consecutive years, yeah, champion. Yeah, yeah. But but the I, I mean, the question that people always asked was the why is she not more famous? And I'll give the quote from the book because I can't put it better. And uh, the quote from the book is the overarching explanation, however, is simple. This was an era in cycling when the institutional sexism that runs through many sports was shockingly evident. So I'd mentioned there's no Olympics. Mentioned there's no Tour de France, um, and and the thing that. I suppose makes her fascinating is she was tunnel vision towards her career. So The book talks about her, her marriage, her, her daughter, who also became a, a champion cyclist, the competitive tension between the mother and the daughter. The mother um, always wanted to beat the daughter later on in life, and how everything in that person's, in Beryl's life, was focused around the cycling. So we've described as humble simplicity and bloody mindedness, absolute tunnel vision about meeting her own cycling needs. And like many sports people, a lot of the descriptions in the book come – she doesn't come across as necessarily the warmest individual or the the individual who people would like the most, but that's a very, very driven mentality towards winning. And I suppose in some sort of beautiful… Uh, closure, bookending, et etc. She died relatively young, she died age 59, uh, running errands on her bike. So she lived on her bike. She, she didn't really have cars. she generally traveled by bike as well in those sort of halcyon 50's, 60s, 70s days and she died just fell off her bike and died on the side of a road whilst delivering parcels. So in terms of uh, you know rounding off a life lived on a bike,
0: that seems a fitting way to go. I, I love those examples of yeah, that, that focus in a sport which you know at the time would have you know, not have been you know say no profile at all and it's like those um you know, the sport that always interests me is the fell runners who do these incredible feats of running around the lake district and and beyond often kind of working on on farms and they would just go for 50 mile run over the over the hills but completely completely unknown outside the the particular sport so the motivation you must have to do it because there is very little extrinsic recognition of what you do so that razor like focus and determination is is incredible
1: yeah i think it goes to what is your motivation what is your internal driver she was clearly she loved cycling she and she loved being competitive, but it was something that drove her on. And this was in a time, I mean, sports generally didn't pay a huge amount of those times, let alone the female sports. And yeah, she worked a, a, on a rhubarb farm uh, and you know, combined, essentially, working a manual job with doing these phenomenal feats on a on a, on a bicycle. And the book it talks about the fact that they've if you take the time she was doing then, you update them for sort of modern technology, et cetera, uh, they work out that she would still be at the very top of what we're seeing from performers today. So against the backdrop of doing that at a very different time. and I love the Fell running books as well. Uh, I mean, Richard Asquith, I think, is a sort of a good author, et cetera. But again, it's that mentality, isn't it? It's the go out and do great things before breakfast mentality, which has always appealed to me. And there's something in there, which is that mix of the indomitable but also the the recognition that ninety nine point whatever percent of human beings haven't got that mentality, and I won't claim to. But I find it fascinating reading about people who do have that.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, I I don't particular like you know, I don't particularly follow cycling, but I I, I did read um, a book about some of the uh, so the Italian cyclists of the of the twenties and and thirties, and of course they're doing it on bikes that you know, by today's standards are. Yeah, very very primitive but the distances that they were doing in a day like 200 250 miles there seemed to be a culture where people would be out to sabotage you en route um, and also you know well some of the some of the strange things that they were taking i think if i remember this correctly one of them was taking minute doses of strychnine to aid performance and do you think Get that wrong. That's not going to be uh, tremendously performance enhancing. So uh, that is true. That is true. I think I've read the. Uh, so it's not like a combat. Yeah, I've read that too. Yeah. Uh,
1: but I think I've read the similar, if, if not the same book. And uh, the other other drugs in there they were using <laughs> as well, which again would be illegal these days, more of the recreational variety. So yeah, yeah,
0: of a of a different time. Yeah. Okay, so we we have Beryl, and this, this this is fascinating because it is a, you know, a, a sports figure that I had never I had never heard of. Um, so that's spring. Let's uh, let's tiptoe into the summer. Uh, a book for uh, um, for the middle of the year.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to do these. And this is going to be slightly cheating. I'm going to do these as a pair because they're by the same author, and I read them effectively together. And there's there's a heavy degree of overlap between them. So. The two books are called Behind the Cloud is one of them and Trailblazer is the other. And they are both authored or sort of co-authored but the name up in lights is by someone called Mark Benioff. Um, Now Mark Benioff is the founder of a very now big company called Salesforce. Salesforce. and this probably does them a disservice, it's a factual statement of what they do, they sell client relationship management software, and the biggest vendor in the world of that, started in the late 90s by Mark Benioff, uh, and they've come to dominate that industry. But so Behind the Cloud is a bit of a tale of how it all started and how it came to be. Trailblazer, much more recent book, looks at the, the Salesforce culture, and in particular this idea of a company having a purpose, and I find that fascinating because I think so many companies struggle with: you know, Does a company need to have a purpose or not? And you go back to the 70s and the Friedman-esque, you know, that the sole purpose of a company is maximizing profits for shareholders, and and you know, that's that's not seen now as the modern explanation of what a company should do. Uh, and I think the thing I found really telling about both these books was and maybe you can get this in a founder-led business in a way you can't elsewhere, is there's just a real simplicity about it. It's a Salesforce are a sales-driven organisation. You could not be more focused on succeeding in your business, and yet they are also incredibly focused on this idea of doing good in their community. And I just, I found it a really fascinating combination of books to read for this idea of, okay, what can business do and, and what should business
0: do? Can you tell them a bit more about that sort of doing good in the community, what that what that looks like for for Salesforce, what that involves.
1: Yeah, so I'll use um, the phraseology that Mark Benioff uses in there. So it talks about cultural totems at Salesforce and this idea that that it's more than just making money. So it talks about a a commitment to getting involved in a world beyond our walls, and talks about our people want to help communities, they want to help others grow, and they want to make our customers and our companies successful. And and Benioff presents it as a very intrinsically linked aspect of we want to succeed as a business and we want to help our communities. The two things are not inconsistent, they are consistent. And he talks about when they look at why people join Salesforce, actually giving back is the second highest reason why new hires join Salesforce. And it ranks in one of the top three reasons why employees stay. I think what Benioff did with Salesforce is they, they looked at their giving and, and they ended up doing quite famous phraseology, 1% of equity, 1% of product and 1% of employee's time towards giving back. But it does run through their company. Uh, they, they hire people who want to be highly successful business people but also want to give back and that vision permeates and I thought the way in which they do that is fascinating.
0: I love that phrase, cultural uh, cultural totems.
1: <laughs> you like your good words. You like your uh, yeah, good
0: words. no, I I, I I do like that, and I, uh, yeah, there's definitely a point there, isn't there, about the about that that vision, what an organisation stands for at its heart, and if you get that right, that is going to resonate with people. It's going to bring them bring them in. Um, it's a very powerful. Yeah, and, and you know, no surprise given my position. One
1: of the reasons I found it very interesting was to then try and reflect on. I think it's a, it's a perennial question these days for big law firms. You know, what is a purpose of a law firm? Does it make sense for a law firm to have a purpose? And we at Linklaters do a huge amount around giving, and it's highly important to to all of us. But but you know, is that the purpose of a law firm? So that, those sorts of questions. But there's another great line from Benioff where he talked about the bottom line is that people want to work for employers. Who strive to create purposeful platforms for good? This isn't some intellectual construct. When bright employees see misalignment with their values, they view it as a personal betrayal and they walk. And, and that resonated. I also, the bit about not being an intellectual construct resonated because. You can can overthink things. I mean, you can overthink things in terms of having to have a a framework, a rubric, some sort of very logical thing. And lawyers, gosh, yeah, we probably do that more than most. And at some point, you read the 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 behind the cloud and trailblazer books, and you go, yeah, it's not hard, right? Basically, you just you are relentless about giving your customers what they need on the business side and you are relentless about doing good out there in the world. And it doesn't need to be more difficult than that. It doesn't need to be something where you go and sort of spend years and years pondering over metaphysical questions. Just mm. embrace both of those. Mm. And then, and this, this this sort of explains a little bit my thinking, one of the things that's, that's most stuck with me this year, and this is not a book and I'm gonna cite and quote the relevant individual, but a few times I've been at events where Paul Drexler, who's the chairman of the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce, um, has been speaking, and it's sort of charity-type events, and, and the challenge that Paul has been setting for businesses, which is sort of sitting in my head, um, yeah, and, and this is quite UK-focused, but you can extrapolate it for where people are, and the challenge Paul would say, and say very emotively, was, in the UK, we are the sixth richest country in the world, and yet we are spectating on poverty. We have 14 million people living in poverty in the UK, 4.2 million of them are children, At age five in the UK, disadvantaged pupils were 4.8 months behind their peers. That was in 22. And that gap is widening. So it's widening um, compared to 2019. Um, So it had narrowed for a little bit and it's widening again. And by the end of senior school, disadvantaged pupils are over 18.8 months behind their peers. And the challenge Paul was giving it was, why does business not use its voice to articulate its views that this is unacceptable more clearly? And, And so both of those stayed with me and I was reading then these books and you know, they also sort of tended to come together so something I'm thinking about a lot I won't claim to have answers but certainly it's something that's affected me as an individual as a leader during this mm-hmm. year which is why I cite these two books.
0: Yeah and yeah, then, yeah, at heart businesses are made of people and people do wonderful generous things outside the organization so why shouldn't they do exactly the same within the organization as well Yeah and why
1: shouldn't we as
0: organizations and be prepared to use our voice to support that as well, and our actions, probably even more importantly. Yeah. So, let's head into the autumn. Uh, a book for the autumn. A book for the autumn. So this one picks up probably a
1: number of themes that uh, that were around this year, but sort of it's almost like the uh, it's like the prequel, yeah, you know, what uh, what happened before. So this book is called The Founders, and it's by an author called Jimmy Sony S O N I. And I will uh, make the point that not all these books were published this year. They just happened to be ones that I read at a particular point this year and they resonated. So what is The Founders about? So The Founders is about essentially the formation of PayPal. So the early years of PayPal, how it came together, sort of a young Elon Musk. uh, And and, given this year, Elon has been in the press quite a lot for Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it these days, the artist formerly known as Twitter. And, and clearly, other business uh, interests. And there's the other very big book this year, the Walter Isaacson book on Elon Musk, which is on my Christmas reading list. Actually, it was fascinating to go back to the start, to go back to the the '90s, that era in Silicon Valley. It's got sort of you know, LinkedIn, lots of other founders who pop up throughout all these different companies. Peter Thiel, and uh, it's just fascinating to see you know, what they were doing then, how it became these big organisations today. But also the themes that stayed consistent throughout.
0: Always, always fascinated by um, how how organisations that turn out to be incredibly successful how they start. What are the what are the seeds for it? Where does it where does it spring from? Was there any indication of that in the in the book? Was it just? these individuals coming together, the right individuals at the, at the right time? Was it that that was the business idea that had found its moment, why? Wow. Yeah, I think it's, com-
1: I mean, the easy answer is it's a combination of all of those things. I think what came through was, and this is again is to be both um, lauded and criticized, is uh, a relentless approach towards making the succeed. So the energies and the clarity that went into it, and at the extremes that was to a brutal degree in terms of I'm not sure that that these were fun people to be around given they were so driven. Um, but they created something special as a result of that. And there's some phraseology in there that that stayed with me. So for example, there's one bit where Musk is talking about the importance of making decisions. and. He talked about if there were two paths where we had to choose one thing or the other, and one wasn't obviously better than the other, then rather than spend a lot of time trying to figure out which one was slightly better, we would just pick one and do it. And sometimes we'd be wrong, but oftentimes it's better to just pick a path and do it rather than just vacillate endlessly on the choice. And coming from a law firm where lawyers like reflecting on things to to a large degree, actually that one really resonated. But yeah, this hunger, this drive, this willingness to make choices, willingness to take risks—I think clearly. Elon Musk has done that throughout the remainder of his career. Actually, that really came through. And you also do get that sense of fragility of how it could have all gone wrong any number of times within that. The amount of risk was very,
0: very high. I think in terms of that focus, and I think this is a story about PayPal, but I could have got it wrong that apparently there was a senior executive within PayPal who was known for strolling the corridors, going into meeting rooms, and if the attendees could not articulate the intent of that meeting, why exactly were they spending time in that meeting room, he would terminate the meeting there and then and just kick them out. Yeah. and there's which, a, which I think is something perhaps we've all got a lot of sympathy well, the, for.
1: Yeah. There's, there's an honesty of that. So, so another thing that really stayed with me, and uh, I'm not advocating this necessarily, but um, there, there was a comment about the fact that PayPal had this friction, right? It's so a friction of which that, that's an example, where, um, and that friction, though, was a creative friction. So there's a quote by one of the founders, Levchin, and he says, you know, look, the management team at PayPal was very frequently incompatible. Management meetings weren't harmonious, board meetings were even worse, they were certainly productive meetings, decisions were made and things got done, but people got called idiots if they deserved it. And then Levchin talked about his next company, his next startup, which he won't know because it didn't go anywhere. He says, you know, we tried to create a nicer environment, the idea of having meetings where people really like one another seems great. Um, and he says, that was folly. The mistake <laughs> was to conflate anger with a lack of respect. People who are smart and energetic are often angry, not at each other. They're angry we're not there yet. They've got to solve X when they should be working on some greater problem. So, yeah, disharmony at PayPal was actually a side effect of very healthy dynamics. And, you have know, people complain about each other behind their backs, you have a problem. If they don't trust each other to do good work, they've got a problem. But um, people know their teammates are going to deliver, you're good, even if they're calling each other idiots. And you know, there's something there, I'm right? clearly <laughs> not advocating a, uh, a, a, an organization or a setup where where you know it's anger and, and rage or whatever, but yeah, that idea of you know you have to be transparent and open, right? Being willing to challenge each other's ideas—that's where great things come from—and not taking it personally. So, a few sort of quite individual bits in there that resonated, but um, yeah, I, I, I very clearly will say I'm not sure that all the aspects of uh, of it are role models for uh, for other companies.
0: Well, yeah, I mean it's always that balance, isn't it, between um, between groupthink and uh, and dysfunction. And that creative tension or dissent that you get—I um, mean, going way back in the day, it's always fascinated me that um, Rumours by Fleetwood Mac turned out to be—you know, was it 50 million copies sold? When you think that none of the band members were um, in the uh, in the studio at the same time, you had two fractured relationships and prodigious consumption of Class A drugs. On the face of it, it doesn't seem the recipe for a best-selling <laughs> album. But I guess just like PayPal, there was that desire there to create what was going to be the best album of their, of their careers. And once you've got that focus and, of course, all the tension and, uh, you know, and the creativity fed, fed into that. But, uh, I suppose
1: there's also uh, showing my academic side, there's a survivorship bias there, right, of what, what about all the bands that had the creative tension in the politest terms and failed because of it? So uh, there uh, you go. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, 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 no, Correlation I and that, causation.
0: Yeah, there were a few <laughs> in the 70s uh, and beyond. <laughs> so look, we have autumn, let's, let's, uh, let's go into winter.
1: Yeah, so this is hot off the um, well, hot off the Paul Lewis reading process, I suppose. So I was reading this over this weekend, just gone. Haven't quite finished it yet, but uh, as it's its nonfiction, it's unlikely to uh, divert massively in the last twenty percent. So this is a book called "Scaling People" by Claire Hughes Johnson, and I bought this a while ago, so was sitting in my sort of very big pile of books to read. And I was reading the latest edition of Forbes at the Weekend, as you do. And that had one of those that time of year, you know, the business leaders recommend books that have meant the most to them this year. And and actually what was interesting the way the Forbes did it was they they didn't just make sure every book was different. They just basically took a load of leaders and said, What book would you recommend? And this one kept coming up again, again and again. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I remember buying that a while ago. So to give you some context, so Claire Hughes Johnson, she was the one of the COOs at Google in its sort of earlier incarnation, so in the founder days, sort of pretty much onwards, um, and she then became the COO at Stripe, um, so obviously another sort of payments uh, startup now very well known, and this book talks about just her, actually, her, the, the Google and Stripe philosophy around organizational setup, organizational design, how you scale. so she's a mentor to lots of tech startups in terms of how you go from a small startup to something very big and talks about the, the organizational structure and process and hiring and what goes into that. And, and clearly in one sense that she's talking about two entities that at the time she joined them respectively were in startup mode. but I think there's lessons in there for organizations of any size. And it's a very practical book, so she will include in there, and does include in there, uh, extracts from internal documents at Stripe or internal documents at Google as to how they do things, extracts about how they run interviews, about what sort of questions they ask to probe certain things. And so I found reading it, it was in some ways it was a good tester, because I'd read it and think, do we do that, you know, could we do that differently, etc. Um, but also there's some very practical hints and tips in there as well. so I say not quite finished yet uh, so but it 's unlikely to go awry over the last twenty
0: uh, percent, but enjoying it a great deal and it 's a topic isn 't it that we we don 't often think about We imagine that this progression from startup to large successful company follows this kind of nice little incline but it is a it is a huge it is a huge change and all the all the things wrapped up into it you know things like culture you know you start off with a small with a small team that grows the culture that enabled you to be successful at the outset can that continue to the to the next stage plus you know all the all the organizational and administrative uh, consequences of that. And I guess it's not dissimilar if we if we step if we sort of step into the sporting world, teams that, you know, shoot up the leagues um, and then trying to maintain that success. Because the things that made you successful at the outset are those the things that are going to sustain you for the uh, for the longer term
1: yeah well i'm sure there's another book somewhere isn't there the uh, what got what got us here and might not get you there or something i think that's the yeah. phraseology yeah. i mean there are a few things that really um resonated when i was reading it so just a, a few of those sort of little phrases that stay in your mind so one was about scaling to the call um it's a phrase she cites where she talks about the fact that you know you're hiring individuals and they can do the current role very very well but then when you look at, will they be able to scale to the increasing size of the company, the increasing ask of those individuals? Mm -hmm. Do they have that capacity effectively, that capacity to change? And I like that concept. The other one she talks a lot about is around focus and strategy. And there's a quote which she says, I'm fond of saying a strategy should hurt, the trade-offs, where you invest time and resources, and where you don't, should be painful and disappointing, either internally or to your customers. There's no such thing as a strong strategy that prioritizes everything at once. And maybe this was the sal for me as a managing partner in that uh, it yeah, maybe maybe sort of gives me a self-justification for the disappointment I create uh, in terms of us following our strategy. But I think that's such a good phraseology. You know, to have a a good strategy, you need to have that focus. She also cites, and I'd seen this um, earlier this year, I think this is one where I had mentioned it on LinkedIn, uh, the famous peanut butter manifesto, which was written by someone at Yahoo became famous. And it was talking about um, the strategy of Yahoo at the time being described as spreading peanut butter across the myriad opportunities that continue to evolve in, in their case, the online world. And as a result, a thin layer investment spread across everything we do, and thus we focus on nothing in particular. Again, I'm all about you know, strategy and focus and knowing where you want to get to. So that phraseology really resonated. And then she makes the point of that doesn't just happen. You need a structure around it. You need an organization. You need to find the right balance between not having too much bureaucracy, but also having something that enables you to scale. And that is also a constant challenge with any organization of that. You know, how much bureaucracy do you have? How much of it is worthwhile? How much just becomes, you know, muck jobs effectively, jobs for job's sake?
0: I was, I was, I was thinking there that perhaps an alternative spread, to go with the concept of the strategy, is going to be attractive to some, and less attractive to others. That rather than peanut butter, it should in fact be Marmite.
1: <laughs> Does that translate boundaries or borders? I don't know.
0: Well, I, I don't know a Vegemite, um, but uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> there we go.
0: Maybe. All right, so yes, I look strategy. forward to finishing that over the Marmite strategy. <laughs> So last year we also had uh, the option to include. Now I know Beryl is not strictly a, a business book, but is is there a another non-business book that you would like to include in your year's reading?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I I basically try and intermediate my sort of clever books, as I would call them, with uh, with a load of thrillers. So. What have I done recently? I mean, I read the latest Jeffrey Diva, The Watchmaker's Hand, last week. That was very good. I'm reading a bizarre book at the moment. I don't know how fancy, how sci-fi, by someone called John Scalzi called Starter Villain. Uh, it is bizarre. It has uh, cats who can type and talking dolphins. And yeah, I mean, I, I read it in a review in one of the papers that said it was good. And I started reading it again yesterday. And uh, it definitely is is a very different type of book. Enjoyed that sort of Australian Noir, Chris Hammer, the latest one there, Cover the Bones, that was also very good. Spy novels, Kennedy 35, Charles Cumming. Uh, these are the ones I absolutely plow through, so that'll probably, um, there's a few recommendations there for anyone who wants to uh, try things. But yeah, um, John Scalzi, uh, the dolphins who can talk about being exploited and are trying to form unions. Uh, is a quite a bizarre concept in anyone's brain. So um, there we go.
0: Yeah, I wasn't quite thinking we we're going to end up with uh, talking talking dolphins and, and typing <laughs> typing cats.
1: Yeah, the dolphins are quite rude in this book as well. So uh, ah. if you if you expect to get uh, get polite dolphins, you'll be sadly sadly mistaken.
0: Okay, and a piece of music for two thousand and twenty three. And of course, it doesn't have to have been released in 2023. I love the setup on this, Ian, because uh, yeah, to,
1: to show the green room discussions here, Ian had asked this beforehand, and I'd just sort of said, "Gosh, don't know." And I went back over my Amazon or whatever it is playlist for the songs you've most listened to in the year, and it turns out I've definitely been having a back to the '80s uh, type year, in particular, sort of hair rock of the '80s. And so I mentioned uh, you know, Iron Maiden, Phantom of the Opera keeps coming up quite a lot, and that. Ian instantly prompted you into excitement
0: uh, well well yeah I got a flashback to 1981 seeing uh, seeing Iron Maiden in Ipswich uh, buying a copy of uh, running free I still remember the record shop in Norwich no sadly no longer there where I bought it and I still I still have it. Uh, did you have the hair then, Ian? Did you? Have, I, you uh, know, I did. Were you? Were you um, I did. Oh. I had. I had a uh, hair. Hair. I, in fact, I had the distinction at one time of having the longest uh, boy's hair in the school. So it was down my. <laughs> it was down my back. Sadly, long. Sadly, long gone. Um,
1: yeah. So well, I'm. I'm very impressed by that. You need to bring a photo in at some point. But uh, <laughs> yeah. But one of those again. I'm not sure how many people know that. Uh, I mean, that song was obviously famous in the UK at least. Not sure where. Which is translated globally as being the opening bars of the very famous Lucasade advert, <laughs> uh, which was one of the, sort of the best opening riffs of I think any piece of uh, music of all time, which is clearly why it's featuring on my playlist. It's Clearly, it's one of my
0: running tracks for the year. Well, I, c- I can see it's a great, it's a, it's a great running, it's a great running track with those galloping bass lines. It just drives you on there you go there you go so yeah
1: so that's not a 23 song is it but anyway that uh, that seems to have popped up the list very much on my most played so, it is timeless uh, I'm gonna yeah. do that yes timeless and, yeah sometimes it timeless. it's nice to go back to uh, go back to, to things that you uh, enjoy when you were uh, a different stage of your life
0: Paul thank you once again for a wonderful conversation lots of lots of book ideas I think well I'm tempted by them all but definitely By Beryl. Yeah, to have someone I hadn't heard of before to achieve so much, I I do need to go and read that. Yeah, and
1: it's definitely one. I read all the reviews of it. and just going, oh, this book's brilliant, this book's brilliant. I'm thinking, really? I mean, it doesn't sound that brilliant. read it absolutely transfixed, as you can tell. So uh, it's definitely one of those ones that I think you'll
0: be gripped from uh, pretty much page one. Okay, that's my Christmas reading sorted. Thank you so much, Paul.
1: Always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you very much. (laughs)